0: Hey everybody, this is Rave Telsch, and this is episode 33 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. As always, hope everybody's having a good week out there. It is a week of celebration, despite the circumstances in the world. It is May 6th on the date that this is coming out. Which means two days ago was May the 4th, or May the 4th be with you. So happy Star Wars Day. Uh, In case you didn't see my posts on social media, I did a little bit on uh, No Redeeming Qualities podcast for their first annual Star Wars episode. I talked a little bit about the movie Solo. And why I think Disney kind of gave it a raw deal, and it isn't the movie that's a problem as much as how the studio handled it. So I invite you to head over there. There'll be a link in the show notes. Of course, this coming weekend is a much more important holiday, and that's Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there, and that includes my mother, who... I'm pretty sure it doesn't listen to the podcast regularly, but I do send her links when I know the movie is going to be of particular interest to her, as this week's episode certainly falls into. Uh, this was a movie that I was excited when I got lined up, and I told her about it, and then told her I had not seen this movie, and she was flabbergasted that somehow she had never introduced me to this movie. Not sure how that happened because she certainly introduced me to a lot of movies. You've heard me talk with guests in the past about movies that our parents introduced us to, and that tends to be where a lot of our early film tastes come from are movies that, you know, our parents introduced us to. And I I can think of several many movies that my mother introduced me to, some a little awkward, like watching Midnight Cowboy as a teenager with my mother. That's kind of an uncomfortable situation that has stuck in my head. But, you know, then I turned around and... Years later, showed her garden state, and that was probably equally as uncomfortable. So uh, we have an interesting relationship, but I know she's going to listen to this week's episode because this is a movie that she would love to talk about and, and wants to wanted me to, to see. So hi, Mom, happy Mother's Day, and happy Mother's Day to all the other mothers out there as well. Before we get to the actual episode, however, we've got the Friday Inquiry to take care of. Every week on social media, I post a question on Fridays related to that week's episode. Last week, we talked in the episode about Tom Cruise, and I criticized him for not really being a transformative actor for the most part. When you pay for Tom Cruise, you get Tom Cruise. And so I asked, who's another actor that you think of along the same lines? And Boy, did the answers come out of the woodwork. It turns out that we think of a lot of actors that way. So over on Facebook, where you can find us that have not seen this podcast, the answers just rolled in. Luis Ramirez said, When I was listening to the podcast, my first thought was Michael Ironside. I had just finished watching Highlander 2, The Quickening. Don't ask me why. Don't ask you why you were watching Highlander 2 or why you thought of Michael Ironside. Uh, James Rodriguez said modern-day Bruce Willis. Luke Kunkka said Seth Rogen, Paul Rudd, and Chris Pratt. Chris Eklund said Will Smith stands out the most in my mind. Adam Thomas said Will Ferrell. Jeff Clark said Elvis Presley. Cat uh, Milner said Harrison Ford. Price Ash said The Rock. Beth Smith Stockner said, Chris Hemsworth, love him as Thor. I have yet to find another movie that has worked for him. Johanna said, present Johnny Depp. Ethan Holder said, Jesse Eisenberg, Bill Murray, Betty White, Ryan Reynolds. And Don McAlexander said, Dean Norris, definitely a one trick pony. Over on Twitter, where you can find us at Have Not Seen This, script promptu said Samuel L. Jackson, The Rock, Will Ferrell, Denzel Washington, so many more. The Passion Fruits podcast, which of course was our guest last week, said Nicolas Cage, and Thomas Mariani rounded out the bunch by saying, Bruce Willis, which has been a bummer as of recent, with Redbox movies that pay him $1 million per day to go on autopilot, still occasionally it works when someone takes a new angle on her persona, such as Moonrise Kingdom or Looper. And that's a lot of responses, and the problem is... I can't really take issue with many of those like Will Smith, maybe because he has changed over time. He's not the same wisecracking young kid that he was when he started doing stuff like men in black and independence day. He does have a more brooding side as of late, but it's still Will Smith. So I can't really argue with most of these offerings. So maybe my criticism of Tom Cruise wasn't fair. Maybe that's what a lot of actors are like, but let's be honest Do we really want to see The Rock do something much different than what he does? Do we really want Samuel L. Jackson to transform himself? So maybe it's just what we want. All right, let's turn our eyes to this week's offering, which is Harold and Maude, brought to us by Brett Barnett from the Quietly Yours podcast. And I I want to give a special thanks to Brett for bringing this movie to the podcast, but also for recording it. You see, this episode was almost one of our lost episodes. Uh, We... Got things set up to record, and then the coronavirus stuff happened, and suddenly he and I just lost touch. And a couple of weeks went by without hearing anything, and I just kind of had written this episode off. I had already watched the movie, already done the research, already done everything, you know, prepped everything. But uh, sometimes that just happens, that people just drop off the face of the earth. And thankfully, Brett got back in touch with me, and we ended up getting to record this. And we have it here for you to listen to this week. Great movie. I had not seen it before doing this podcast, as I mentioned before, and we have a great conversation about it. So here we go. 1971's Harold and Maud. One of your early emails, I was looking back through our emails and you said you uh, studied
1: film. I did. Yeah. Um, It was on that course that I actually found Harold and Maud. It was one of the films we were taught
0: so what was the focus what was your purpose in studying film was that to to go anywhere or just because you love the format
1: of both it was um one year i did practical filmmaking so that was how to actually make films and then three years of it was theory which can be anything at all
0: (laughs) and and what did you hope to pivot that studies into like what what was your goal with that
1: into filmmaking um but everything really has followed an independent kind of track for me still not doing it professionally everything i do is very much independent films still
0: nothing wrong with that i mean uh, no. so have you gotten <laughs> to make a couple of films
1: uh yeah i have we did a um, me and some of my the people that i studied with we did a really long form project it was like an episodic thing 5 hours or something total so that was kind of a way of teaching ourselves film as well so you learn as much off of these courses as you do on them
0: oh yeah that's my understanding with filmmaking is that you know you you learn fundamentals from classes but you really learn by
1: doing absolutely all about practice
0: so five hours so what was what what uh what were you making what was this about
1: it was a comedy drama uh it was intended originally to be a parody of soap operas i wanted to sort of capture that really over the top kind of vibe that you get from soap operas but um we ended up caring about the characters quite a lot, so we took it seriously in the end. So I guess that shows you that you can fall in love with character and it stops being a parody. If that makes sense. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that makes perfect sense. That's that's you know, I, I've always said that's the importance of good storytelling. It, you know, the story will come, but you've got to have characters that you care about. You've got to have characters that the audience cares about, or it doesn't mean a thing.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Funnily enough, I think that's one of the reasons that binge watching makes the watching experience of a TV show so different these days, because rather than an episode a week, you can sit down and spend 10 hours in one chunk with these characters and you could just fall in love with them in a day. And then you're so hooked on the show. I think that's very different to how we used to watch TV.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought it. You know, it's interesting. I was I was looking for something to watch last week, and I, I was I I decided I wanted something short form, which to me, short form used to be television, and now because we binge watch and because you know television is now dynamic storytelling instead of static storytelling, short form tends to be movies and long form tends to be TV.
1: <laughs> yeah, TV's like one big movie these days, which I think is a good thing.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't miss the old days of static storytelling where, you know, everything is back to normal by the end of the episode or the next episode doesn't reference anything that happened before. I've always been a huge fan of, of dynamic storytelling, and I, I love to see how it's been embraced in, in its current you know iteration of storytelling.
1: Absolutely. It just gives so much more room to breathe with plotting the story and things like that. You could never tell something like Game of Thrones if you didn't have that huge runtime. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a Game of Thrones fan? <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I, I was. The final season's very controversial, isn't it? And um, I did up until the final three episodes, perfect television show. But um, it nosedived a little bit.
0: So you're on the bandwagon of,
1: of people who feel like they
0: dropped the ball at the last uh, last play there.
1: Definitely, uh Yeah. <laughs>
0: Gotcha. Okay. So you did a comedy drama as your own film project there. Harold and Maude definitely falls into the comedy drama. What's your, what's your film tastes like? You know, is that, is that definitely kind of where you fit in with the comedy
1: drama mix? Um, not really funnily enough. I will pretty much watch anything. Um, but if you really had to pin me down to a genre, it would probably be horror, which is quite a far cry from there but i love horror
0: yes and no i mean the best horror has comedy and drama mixed into it especially these days um i mean even going back you know something like the exorcist it's not about the horror it's about the drama of what's going on and again kind of what we were talking about about characters you care about
1: yeah that's very true actually uh one example i think of is Scream. it's a serious horror movie and quite scary in places but um you go back and watch it and you forget how much explicit comedy there is in there. It's really, really funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I love the Scream movies, but again, building characters that you care about and the, you know, the nice intermix of drama in there and comedy as well as the horror. So yeah.
1: Absolutely. I watching Scream 4, I was terrified. I thought one of the main characters was going to bite it and I was so scared for them. That shows you how you can get attached to the characters.
0: Yeah, I still remember the first time I saw Scream 2 and um, uh, Randy dies. And I was just, I was horrified by that because here was was our beacon into the filmmaking and that's who dies. Like of all the characters, he shouldn't have been. And I had come to care for that character.
1: Yeah, that was a bit of a shock one, wasn't it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what are your have not seen this movies? What are movies that people uh are are mortified when they find out
1: you haven't seen ooh hmm i can't think of any examples lots of classic ones uh the godfather i've still not seen really? people are always surprised by that i it's on my list but it's just hard to find the time especially when right. i've heard that it's one of the few examples of the sequels being as good or improvements some people say so i feel like i need to dedicate the time to watch all of them
0: well, and it's one of those movies that has uh, a running time that tends to put you off, that if you sit down and you're like, oh, I've got a couple hours to watch a movie, and then you see that it's long running time, it might not be something you just want to throw in.
1: Exactly, yeah. It feels like the kind of thing you need a full day.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially if you're going to go into Godfather 2. Mm. Now, now, it's come up a lot on some of more recent guests have not seen this movies. Have you seen Apocalypse Now? I haven't. I
1: was just thinking I was going to mention that next. How strange. <laughs> it's strange so that what's was popping up so often lately. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a runtime as well, isn't it?
0: Yes, especially when you get into the extended cut, which mm. uh, you you can go with the original I think just as well. The extended cut it, it has some good things for it, but it's mostly just extended.
1: Yeah. I there are a few different versions, aren't there? Like three different director's cuts. Um
0: that I don't remember. I just remember that when it came out, uh, it was the original and the redux, what they called redux version. So that's mm. that's all I, I'm familiar with. But it very well could be several versions of that as well.
1: Yeah, it'll have to go on the list. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I had not seen this week's movie until you brought it for the podcast. Uh, we're talking today about Harold and Maude from 1971, directed by Hal Ashby, written by Colin Higgins. Starring Ruth Gordon, Bud Court, Vivian Pickles, and Charles Tyner. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out And if you want to be free, be free Cause there's a million things to be You know that there are And if you want to live high, live high and if you want to live low, live low, cause there's a million ways to go, you know that there are, you can do what you want. So first question I usually ask is, how do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell them on wanting to see this movie?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question with a movie like this that is so strange. I guess that's the first word that comes to mind is very strange. It's a comedy, but also really dark and philosophical and a bit of an odd subject matter, the kind of movie where you've just got to accept it for what it is and enjoy it. And if you can do that, I think most people really do enjoy it. I think it's fantastic.
0: Okay. So I'm someone who hasn't seen it and you've said that to me. What is odd about the subject matter?
1: You don't often, it's definitely a love story. But it's between these two main characters, a guy who is, I believe, about 20 and a woman who's about to turn 80. Not the kind of thing you see every day. And it certainly (laughs) doesn't sound like the thing most people want to watch. But you watch it and it is a pretty sweet movie. And it has so many funny moments and so many interesting philosophical things to say. So. I think people who don't want to give it a go are definitely missing out.
0: Now you jumped straight on this movie. A lot of guests I get, you know, give me like an array of films that I make them choose from, but you, this was the only one you had. Why, why this movie for our conversation
1: today? Why, why did you choose Harold and Maude? I think it's just the kind of movie that if it clicks with you, it really stays with you. And I think, um, that's not just me. I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, as I said, it's actually one that I discovered studying film for my degree. It was played to my class and um, apparently that's a bit of an annual tradition for the um the professor that was running that class. He says he plays the movie for his class every single year in their freshman year and um funnily enough, he was saying that they tend to sell out in one of our local stores of all DVD copies of it afterwards he's got an almost unanimous positive feedback on the movie every time he's played it and then go out and buy it and he says no one ever really has a bad word to say about it so i think that's quite interesting
0: that that was going to be my next question is how did the class respond to it so that's that is really interesting because i would think that this would have some polarizing responses to it from some people but i guess if you're in a film curriculum then you love the medium and this is certainly an example of really interesting intriguing storytelling
1: yeah, absolutely. I would also think it's a love it or hate it kind of thing, but it does seem that most people fall on the love it side.
0: Right. Which is right. good. So how long ago was that that you were introduced to it in your film studies?
1: Um, Must be about eight years now, something like that.
0: Okay, so not that long ago. Now, is it a movie not you ran out and picked up or is it a movie you've revisited often since
1: then? Absolutely. I have watched it too many times since
0: So what? why do you keep watching it? What about this movie appeals to you? What keeps bringing you back to it?
1: It's definitely the sort of philosophical outlooks on life and how to live a good life that it has to say. I think you can find a lot in there that can guide you in your own way of thinking about how you live your life. I think it has a lot of deep things to say. And I just... (laughs) Never get tired of reminding myself of them
0: yeah it for a a movie that is somewhat about death, it has a lot of really positive affirmations about life within it, and i I found yeah. that really surprising as I was watching it, some of the quotes that I was writing down that really are about trying to live and and really live, not just exist but you know
1: to live your life absolutely it's so much about living in the moment as well, which I think is fantastic.
0: Yeah. So the the movie had my interest from the opening shot, which is a really fascinating approach to introducing your character because you have this shot of this body, uh, you know, coming down the stairs and putting on a record and writing something. And the whole time the shot is on his torso. So we're not seeing his face. Uh, throughout a lot of what's going on here until it's evident that he's attempting suicide. And it's not until he actually attempts suicide that we see his face. And that's our introduction not only to the movie, but
1: to Harold. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic introduction to Harold and to the character of his mother as well. Um, Because I believe right after that, as he's sort of twitching back and forth on this noose that he's hanging from, his mother comes in and... It just goes about her business. And she's it's like she's seen it all before a million times. That's just a perfect way to introduce the characters because you're instantly intrigued. You think he's doing a suicide attempt right there. And his mother's like, oh, Harold, come on, stop it.
0: Yeah. The first actual line of dialogue in the movie is his mother. And she says, I suppose uh, she says, I suppose you think that's very funny, Harold. And that's the first line of the movie, and she's saying that to the body of her child hanging himself, and that's, I guess, as the audience, when we finally know, oh, this is a ruse.
1: Yeah, it sets up the sense of humor very well, I think.
0: And then we learn that he's done this 15 times. I mean, we see several attempts. We see him try to hang himself. We see... I guess kind of the, the attempt that finally breaks her with all the blood as if like he's slid open his wrists and there's blood everywhere. And that's kind of where she re- reaches her breaking point. We see him drowning in the pool or having drowned in the pool. We see him loading a gun to shoot himself. But he tells his psychiatrist he's done this 15 times at least.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting how they do it as well, because those... Um scenes are definitely going for comedy um all the ones you mentioned um are quite comedic there's also one i remember where he sets himself on fire in the background as two of the characters are just talking right
0: that's during one of the dates
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) they're definitely played for comedy but at the same time there's this dark undercurrent that you can you sort of see it peek out in that therapist scene where um he's saying how many times have you done this blah 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 were they all for your mother's benefit? And he's like, I wouldn't say benefits. And it gives you this kind of hint.
0: And that's what I was going to ask you about, is how do you interpret that line? Because he specifically says, not for her benefit. I know I would not say benefit.
1: Yeah, I think it's a clue that even though he's doing it in such, they're very over-the-top sort of stage scenes. None of them are just, well, I suppose the one that you said where he's in the bathtub slit in his wrist is the best example because it's not a very... Quiet scene. Like you said, there is blood everywhere. It's really over the top and cartoonish. So it's not as though he's legitimately trying to convince anyone that he's died. It's like a scream for attention in a way. And he's treating it comedically, like he's turning them into these funny staged scenes. But he's clearly doing it for a darker reason in his psychology of crying out for attention from his mother and trying to deal with his thoughts about living and how he's not living to the fullest and that sort of a window into the way that he doesn't feel like he's truly living. And so he's obsessed with death and acting it out in this way.
0: Now, I had a thought this morning. It's been a couple of weeks since I, I watched the movie, but I suddenly was struck by a thought this morning. Have you seen the movie A Clockwork Orange?
1: I haven't. No, that is another oh. one that people are surprised by. <laughs>
0: Well oddly it comes out in 1971 as well and the parents in that are also very detached and disaffected and I almost wonder if filmmakers in that era were trying to make a commentary on that detachment of the parents but uh since you haven't seen that we'll just leave it at that comment then and it's just something that hit me this morning that you know it's there's a very there's a similarity between Harold's mom and the parents in A Clockwork Orange. So if you if you ever see the movie, you might think about that. Absolutely. So we follow Harold. Uh, uh, he goes to funerals for fun, which is an odd pastime, but not one that's exactly original. I, I know other people, or I, I don't personally know people who do that, but I've heard about other people who do that. And that's where he meets Maud. And what I found really interesting is Harold goes to these funerals and tries to blend in and Maud goes to the funerals and really doesn't try to blend in. Like when she catches Harold's attention, she's you know in the middle of the funeral going tst, tst, trying to get his attention and she has this you know giant yellow umbrella that kind of makes her stand out. What do you think about that juxtaposition between the two
1: characters? I think it's fantastic. Like you said she is just completely happy to be herself in any situation. It's almost like she just lacks the ability to blend in even when it's sort of socially required like a funeral where it's really not considered appropriate to be anything particularly bright or flashy or stand out because the focus isn't about you but those kind of things just don't affect Maud she is just herself and you can't stop her I think it's fantastic especially as you said for a juxtaposition for Harold who I think that highlights why the death scenes are such an important thing for Harold because he is trying to blend in in his life and his mother definitely is trying to get him to blend in and live a normal life and then there are just these flashes of cartoonish behavior from him that's like it's like he's screaming to get out of that normalcy and he finally finds that through his friendship with Maud
0: Right, right. Well, that actually leads me into one of the critical reviews I pulled for this. Um, So let's talk real quick about the critical side of this. It sits at 84% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 93% audience score. It sits at 62% at Metacritic, which is, I thought, a little low. Um, Roger Ebert provides our negative quote or negative review, uh, which kind of ties into what I was just saying, though, which is, uh, he says, and so what we get finally is a movie of attitudes. Harold is death, maud life, and they managed to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. The visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum, and all the movie lacks is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby, filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Harold doesn't even make pallbearer. So I guess Ebert really didn't like Harold
1: all that much. (laughs) It doesn't seem like it, does it? I think. That seems like he's sort of missing the point of the movie there. Um he's talking about the juxtaposition of life and death, but he's kind of missing the journey that Harold takes because Harold changes a lot during the movie. It's about him learning to overcome this obsession with death and this inability to live life to its fullest. It's about him coming more like Maud. So I think yeah. that really misses out on that key aspect.
0: Well, and I almost think Mark Caro of the New York Times, this is our positive review, catches on that and, and something else that I, I want you to think about, although it's only been eight years since you were first introduced to the film. But Mark Caro of the New York Times writes, time hasn't treated all of Harold and Maude with such grace. The whimsy and political humor can get thick and our feelings about age and vitality have evolved, but nothing is perfect. And the movie's errors, if you call them that, are on the side of its big heart. I'd like to say the same about myself. I was so concerned about how my older self would judge my younger self that I didn't consider something more powerful. I'm not just seeing how the movie was, but how I was and how I still am. This is what great art can do. I think Caro is
1: kind
0: of. Yeah, isn't it? And I think he's, uh, you know, (laughs) the idea that I think Ebert is looking at how Harold was throughout the film, but not considering how the character evolves. And Caro is doing the other. He's looking at how not only Harold evolves, but how we as people and how we as an audience evolve over time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think maybe part of the problem is because it ends ever so slightly before a lot of movies would. Harold really only accepts life and becomes the fully changed character in the final 30 seconds or so of the movie. And we sort of, we don't get to see him after he's changed, whereas you would in a lot of movies, but this sort of leaves it up to the viewer's imagination. So maybe that's why it's not the most prevalent theme. Yeah.
0: Well, let's hold off on talking about the ending for a little while. Um, But that's definitely something I do want to touch upon because it's, it's such an important element. And as you said, that's where his character transformation kind of takes place. I mean, I, I would say it takes place over the course of the film, but that's where it becomes really evident. Absolutely. Yeah. Maud is a spitfire. I mean, she is <laughs> something else. <laughs> and I absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love the way she is played. Like Ruth Gordon is brilliant in this
1: role. She is. It's just, she's a natural.
0: And yet she didn't get an Oscar for it. She got nominated for a Golden Globe, but that kind that's of surprises me because it's a powerful performance.
1: It is. She is absolutely fantastic.
0: I particularly love, you know, and I'm sure anybody who has seen this, uh, you know, I mean, she's the the stealing of cars throughout, you know, that, that that's how really they first meet outside the funeral is she stole his car. She pulls up to give him a ride and it's his car that she's taken.
1: Yeah. But the whole time, you never think, oh, how horrible she's stealing these cars. The movie and her performance make sure that you're always on her side. She's stealing people's yeah. cars. And I think, yeah, she says something to the effect of, oh, I'm just reminding people, don't hold on to things, here today, gone tomorrow. And you're in the audience thinking, yeah, Maud's right. <laughs> Yeah, like the, the coin he gives her
0: late in the movie, you know, the, the Harold Loves Maud coin. And, you know, he. you see him working at the coin press to, to make that at the amusement park. And then he gives it to her. And it's supposed to be like this really, I guess, emotional moment. It's the connection between them. And she looks at it and says, thank you, and then throws it into the ocean.
1: Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite scenes.
0: Yeah, I mean, her logic is, so I'll always know where it is, but it is also kind of that detachment from personal possessions. You know, she doesn't have to own it to appreciate it. And now she knows where it is. And yet it's not cluttering up her life, which I think is a
1: really interesting vantage point. It is. It's such an interesting way of thinking about it. She doesn't even hesitate to throw it into the ocean. It's just a fantastic way of saying the memory and the person is what matters, not the object. And she's never going to lose the memory.
0: Right. And I almost think that's such a poignant thought for today's society where we have, you know, I'm, shoot, I'm sitting in a room surrounded with boxes, some of which I probably haven't gone through in years, but it's like, no, this stuff is meaningful to me. It's important to me, but it shouldn't be. It should be the memories that are important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that a lot of people could do with reminding themselves of. And you see a lot these days, minimalism is really a huge fad right now. And I think that's for Pretty much the same reason. People realize that, that they don't have to build their lives around these possessions. It's more about being thoughtful about your life and your memories in your head rather than cluttering your life with reminders. You don't need the reminder if the memory is always with you. Yeah.
0: And it's it's one thing to say that, though. I mean, that makes perfect sense the way you just put it. But what I really like about the movie is it says that, but it also says it in an entertaining way. As you said, you're always on Maud's side. And so you're saying it here on a podcast and people can listen to it and go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But because of the way the movie frames Maud for us and puts us on her side, when she says something like
1: that, we want to listen. Yeah, exactly. Because I think you can tell how much she believes the things she's saying and how positively it affects her life and her mindset. And there's I think it's hard to watch this movie without a part of you in the back of your head going, wow, I wish I was a bit more like Maud. So you kind of want to emulate <laughs> those ways that she thinks about things.
0: Yeah. Now, there's a, a, a very brief shot, and I love the fact that it's very brief. I, I'm assuming you've caught it because you've, you're familiar with the movie, but there's a very brief shot of numbers tattooed on her arm, you know, kind of yeah. indicating that she was in a concentration camp. Yeah. And I I love the fact that it's like a 2 second shot of his arm and nothing is said about it. It's just there and I guess it, you know, if you're an audience member who understands it, then suddenly it adds significant depth to where Maud came from. And if you're not an audience member or if you're an audience member who doesn't understand it, then it doesn't add anything, but it doesn't detract. But I love the fact that Hal Ashby decided to show that shot, but then not say anything about it beyond
1: that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that really makes the movie worth at least two watch-throughs as well, because you will always watch it with a different mindset the second time because of that scene. It really makes you think there's a whole egg layer to how Maud behaves, the things you're saying about how she just stands out in the funeral scenes. She's just like a sore thumb in every crowd she's in. That's all the more meaningful when you know that she's been through that kind of dehumanizing situation where she's forced to just be one of the crowd, the same as everyone else. So when you appreciate that she's been through such a painful, tough past that has forced her to do that, the fact that she's now a complete free spirit who stands out wherever she is, it really adds to that whole theme, I think on a second viewing.
0: Yeah. And I love like, I mean, it's the little things with this movie that really make it stand out. Like she has the scene with Harold where they're looking at, you know, some of the pictures she has and she has the umbrella hanging up in her room. And she explains, you know, the value of that umbrella, that it was, you know, a weapon at defense, you know, a, a means of defense at picket lines and rallies. And then Later, when she's doing the one-person protest to help Harold avoid getting into the military, she has that umbrella with her. And again, it's not focused on, it's not put in the audience's face, but it's one of those, if you were paying attention, you see that this cause is important to her because she's dragged out her defense weapon.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's so many little things like that in the movie that are just fantastic details, and it doesn't feel like it needs to explain everything to you. I think that's great.
0: Yeah, I that's I wish more stories or more movies would take that approach of just letting counting on the audience being smart enough to put two and two together or allowing them to miss it and still having the movie be a good experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um I can see why you would go in both directions as well from a filmmaking point of view. One of my main roles in filmmaking is screenwriting. so. Um, I've often been writing scenes where you can really second guess yourself in your head as a writer. You think, oh, this is obvious what you're trying to get across. But then you think, no, you've not you've not said it clearly. The audience might not pick up on it and they might miss a big piece of the puzzle that you're giving them. So you write in an explanation and then it's important when editing, I think, to remember that and think, "Mm, does that explanation really need to be there? Or is that just sort of dumbing it down? you don't have like the audience is a lot more clever than you give them credit for and they will right. pick up on things even if they're subtle and i think as a writer you can be afraid that they won't pick up on things like that but that's a impulse you've got to overwrite because the audiences are clever and they will get things like that
0: yeah that's actually one of the the first rules of screenwriting i i learned was that you can it's okay to put those explanations in as a draft but as you are finalizing it before you're letting other people see it you need to you need to remove those explanations and make sure the scene stands and communicates what you want it to without it because otherwise that explanation is going to end up marring the picture you know the the vision that you had is going to make it to the director but because you put in this overt explanation it's going to end up becoming part of the director's approach as well
1: absolutely it's that old adage of show don't tell which I almost hate to say because it's such a cliche at this point. any book or class you could take on writing will be show don't tell it's over said
0: it's a cliche,
1: but it's i don't think you can oversay it because it's still not
0: done before i I started this podcast. I was on a horror podcast, and that was one of it felt like we brought that up week after week after week with independent horror movies where that's what they needed to do, or that's the rule they broke. So I, I don't think you can say it enough, frankly. And it's it should be oversaid, but unfortunately, there's still a lot of filmmakers out there who don't stick to it. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I want to move away from Maude, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about her her and the tree and huh. the sequence where she and Harold steal the tree and, and steal the truck and she gets pulled over by the police officer because that – sequence made me laugh out loud, which was not something I expected this movie to to do to me. I I knew it was a dark comedy and I really expected the emphasis to be on dark, especially as we said, it opens with a a faux suicide. But the, the scene with the cop just had me howling.
1: It is. It is brilliant and so impulsive, which is fantastic. She just risks everything for this tree that she spotted five minutes ago. It's wonderful. And um, the funniest part of that scene for me is how much of a beating the tree takes just through the abuse of being <laughs> dug up and thrown in the t- driven away. The tree is dead by the end. <laughs> They've just ended up killing it, but they meant well. And it's so funny. And as you say, the way that um, she and the cop are interacting and then she steals the motorcycle. Oh, it's just brilliant because that officer clearly has no idea how to deal with a person like this. He's just completely mystified, and that's how she gets away with her. Right. Yeah. I mean, how would you deal with it? You know, I mean, that's,
0: that's, <laughs> there's, it's not in any book by any means. I mean, she's no. just something all to herself there.
1: Absolutely. She's hilarious. Best scene. <laughs> Hi, we're Cutting Class Podcast.
0: Are you interested in skinny dipping with Mao Zedong? How about listening to sexy and suicidal subliminal messages? Maybe destroying an entire city with flaming birds. Or how about having a bowl of anti-pornography cereal? We're two high school history teachers that like to cover the lesser known stories of American and world history.
1: You can check us out on iTunes or anywhere
0: else that you get your podcasts or cuttingclasspodcast.com. So, let's talk a little more about Harold. Uh, and i I don't know how to feel about Harold because I feel like he's, you know, as we said, his mom is detached, uh, you know, is, is so disconnected from him, but he's kind of disconnected from the world. And, and, like, she's trying to get him to get married, and yet, like, he's loading a gun while she's filling out his computer dating profile for him. Which, by the way, computer dating profile in 1971 is really funny.
1: Yeah, impressive. Like, the proto version of Tinder. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did not expect to see that.
0: But he doesn't even, I mean, like, that's how controlling, like, you. that scene right there kind of dictates the relationship that he has with his mom. And you really understand why he's acting the way he does, because she decides he should get married. She's filling out his computer profile for him. And like, he's not getting a say in anything. And as baby faced as he is, which makes it really hard to think of him as, as old as his character is supposed to be. He's supposed to be like in his early twenties, you know, he's he's finished school.
1: Yeah. Like he should be a fully formed person already at his age is sort of the message we get but he isn't yet what i love about that scene as well is it's such a amazing window into how his mother thinks because if you pay attention to the specific bits of dialogue in the scene as she's filling out the form she does start by asking him questions but then she without even realizing what she's doing she starts answering them for him and then by the end she's answering the questions herself I think one of them is like, do you get a lot of headaches? And she goes, oh, well, yes, I do. And fills it out. And she's just answering it herself now for herself.
0: So he ends up on these series of dates. And of course, his goal is, I guess, to, to approach the dates the same as he approaches his mother. So like the first date, he lights himself on fire. And when she freaks out, there is just this joy in Harold's face. Like he doesn't do much, but court manages to elicit just how much joy and happiness he is when she finally gives him the response that he's been wanting from his mother, but not getting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They are like the brightest flashes of emotion that you get out of Harold in the first half of the movie. He's kind of a bit, I don't want to say dead as a character, but he doesn't emote very much if that makes sense, but in those uh, moments where he gets the reactions from his mother, you finally see flashes of strong emotion for the first time, which I think says a lot about how important these cries for attention are to him. I don't remember which of his stage deaths it is, but uh, there is one where at the end, um, he's done the death and uh, the music starts playing and we're about to cut. And there's just this amazing shot where um, Harold smiles and then turns to the camera and gives this really pleased with himself look directly to the camera. It's a wonderful shot. Yeah. I think that's that one that I'm talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a wonderful shot.
1: I also remember reading that that shot was improvised on the day. He just turned around and glared at the camera and they loved it so much. They kept it in. And I think that was the right call. It's a great shot.
0: So since you brought it up, I'm going to go on my one negative for this film, which was, I found the Cat Stevens soundtrack a bit much.
1: I can see why. I do love it, but it it's very jarring, I think maybe would be the right word. It doesn't exactly fit into the movie and the songs don't segue in and out very well. It will just, there'll be nothing going on. And then suddenly it smashes into this bright, upbeat, loud song.
0: That's exactly it, is they didn't fit and there's no real transition into them. They just smash in. I think that you just captured it perfectly. That was the problem I had with them. The only one that really fits is the one that you have Maud playing, and so it fits when it appears later on in the film, but the rest of them just kind of feel like an arbitrary selection that doesn't necessarily match the movie.
1: Yeah, I would have to agree with you there. I do love, um, if you want to sing out, sing out, I think is the title of it, the one that you're talking yeah, about, that's... the main sort of theme. Yeah, that's the one that Maud sings, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The others don't fit as well. They sound good. It's not a bad soundtrack, but it doesn't necessarily gel with the visuals as much as you would want.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, so his other dates, he converts his new jag to a hearse and then cuts his arm off. Yep. And then the whole committing Harry Carey and I particularly love yep. that one because the date then treats it as if it's a performance. Like she's not at any point horrified by what's going on here. She's still giving him a response, which is more than his mother gives him. But it's not the response that he was looking for necessarily.
1: Yeah. She basically just wants to join in.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is, I, I feel like that's a red flag on a date. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So I, I find the, the dates interesting because at the same time, you know, as the audience, we're seeing this relationship with Maud form. And it, it, as you said at the beginning, it's, a, it's an odd relationship. It's kind of an awkward relationship. It's almost an uncomfortable relationship given the difference of their age. And while it's not explicitly stated, it's pretty well inferred that they do end up sleeping together.
1: Yeah, I sort of missed that on my first few viewings, but re-watching it now, I think that's definitely what they're going for explicitly.
0: So you didn't, so it's not something you picked up on right away?
1: No, I think it's quite subtle how it's in there.
0: Yeah, which I think it kind of has to be, given, again, their age difference, I feel like that kind of has to be subtle and implied, not something that's overt. Yeah. Yeah. How did you feel about the relationship between the two of them once that light bulb
1: went off? <laughs> um, conflicted, I think, because I think it's a great relationship and I think they both get a lot out of it. They both come out the other end, improved people or well, Harold does at least. So it's hard not to like it because the film is so well done, but there's also that sort of niggle in the back of your head where you're like, if you did reverse the genders on these, it would feel really problematic, Ooh, and it makes that's... you question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. That's interesting. So I found myself thinking, if it was reversed, would I still find it such a charming relationship? And if not, why does that mean that it's wrong to find Harold and Mod charming, or does that mean we're too judgmental when it's the man who's older and I? I don't know which one I'd say is true. So.
0: Well, I guess the assumption, if it was an older man like that is it would be predatory, which, you know, yeah. mod is many things, but predatory is not one of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: That's a, I, yeah. I, I think if the genders were reversed, there would be absolutely no acceptance of that. I, I, I suspect. No. And I, I, I would, I also suspect that, 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 part of the relationship is kind of a sticking point for some people that potentially could bar their appreciation of the film. Uh, Again, I mean, it's, it's, it's not overt; It is implied, but I I suspect there are some film goers who would have an issue with that element,
1: which I think is very
0: brave to then put it on screen.
1: Exactly. I think a lot of people would struggle to get past that. And I can totally understand Why? But that's also one of the things about the movie that makes you think, because then I'm wondering, well, why do I think that? Why is it hard to get past? It challenges your assumptions and makes you think, well, is it right what we're thinking that makes us think it's inappropriate? Or are we wrong to think that? And I don't know what the right answer is, but I like that the movie makes me think about it.
0: Yeah, and there's so many moments like that. I mean, it's it's almost along the same lines. One of my favorite Maud bits that she kind of pieces of wisdom that she gives us is when she's talking about the flowers and she makes the comment about i feel that much of the world's sorrow comes from people who are this yet allow themselves to be treated as that
1: and and that really gets you thinking absolutely that's i think the best line in the whole movie because i mean she's probably right it's a really great observation about the world um, I don't know yeah. if you noticed as well, because I didn't pick up my first time. I think it was my second viewing that I realized. It seems obvious in hindsight, but the scene you're talking about, they're sat in this huge field of daisies. And after that line, it cuts really, really wide shots of them in the middle of the field. And then it smash cuts to so them sat in the same place. But now they're in the middle of this huge military cemetery. Yeah. And I thought that was such an amazing little observation
0: yeah i have to admit i didn't pick up on that when i was viewing it but i did pick somebody wrote about that and that's that's suddenly mm. it was like oh wow yeah that's it, it's kind of the inevitability you know uh, talking about harold is death and Maud is life but the truth is it, it, we're all headed for death in that, in, in eventually you know it's in, it's inevitable we're all going to die
1: yeah absolutely i think that scene comes before the one you were talking about earlier, where we find out that Maud was in a concentration camp as well. So that's a good example of a scene that is given this whole second layer repeat watching because she's saying most of the world's problems come from people who are this, but allow themselves to be treated like that. When you find out that she was then forced into a situation where she was treated like that, like she is the same as everyone else. And they're dehumanized in that way. It really shows you that there is a lot of thought and meaning behind what Maud's saying. She's not just, you know, wax and lyrical about the philosophy, little quotes she's posting on Tumblr or whatever. She <laughs> has thought about these things deeply and they deeply affect her and mean a lot to her. She's not just saying funny phrases. Do you know what I mean? Oh
0: yeah. And I guess that that's a good way to kind of segue into talking about the film's ending, which Maud has foreshadowed the entire film, but you don't realize it. You know, yeah. she 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 makes numerous comments about her 80th birthday and the experiences she's trying to, you know, get in before her 80th birthday and that kind of stuff. And they finally Harold shows up to celebrate her 80th birthday. And it's revealed that she has taken a bunch of pills and is going to die that she's dying on her terms. But unlike all of Harold's pretend suicides, we have a real suicide uh, here at the end of the film because that's how Maud chooses to go out.
1: Yeah. One of the aspects that hasn't really aged very well, being, what, nearly 50 years later now? 80 definitely doesn't seem in 2020 like a good age to go <laughs> certainly <laughs> not the point where you want to end things you'd be like well you want to go for 90 maybe a bit more
0: well I think it's all perspective because I I remember as a teenager not wanting to be old and when I was a teenager old was like 60 and now I'm 45 and 60 doesn't seem that far away so I think part of it is just a matter of perspective of where you are in your own life as well
1: yeah <laughs> very true <laughs> I do think that is quite relevant these days as well. Over the past uh, 20 years or so, maybe, I think there's been a lot of debate around assisted suicide. So funnily enough, for a movie from nearly 50 years ago, I think they're really hitting on a theme that still resonates today of whether people should be taking their life into their own hands so that they can end it on their terms. And, I mean, in the case of Maud, it's not a great example because she seems to be in perfect health near enough. Right. But um, yeah, I think it opens up an interesting dialogue about what kind of rights a person has for end-of-life decisions about themselves.
0: Yeah. And I mean, there's no look, you, you just kind of hit on it, is there's no way of looking at Maud and saying, oh, well, this was a mistake. Oh, she was confused. Oh, she, you know, was was making a poor decision. No, she absolutely, the movie establishes, she's of sound mind. Uh, so this is her choice. And again, if you pay attention, she has foreshadowed it numerous times throughout the movie. I didn't catch it until the moment came where she admits to Harold what she's done. And then suddenly it was like all these things she had said throughout the movie really clicked. And it was like, damn, yeah. it's still a really powerful moment.
1: It is because you can see that realization happen. On Harold's face as well, I think you see that he realizes that he could have done something to prevent it because she's not exactly been keeping it secret that this was what she was planning, but he never took it seriously.
0: Right, because he had done all these pretend suicides, so he he doesn't take suicide seriously at all.
1: Exactly. And it really comes full circle. It's a bit of a taste of your own medicine kind of situation because after having put his mother through this so many times, he's now on the receiving end of it, but this time he knows that it's for real. And he has to experience that pain that he's been trying to inflict on his mother.
0: That's a good point. I hadn't thought about it in those terms either, but that's a really good point.
1: I also think it's an interesting aspect of that scene as well is it doesn't focus very much on the death aspect, especially compared to the fake outs, which are really graphic and over the top. Maud's death is kind of treated really subtly Maud's never she never really talks about the fact that she's dying she treats it like it's just a normal everyday thing she's just finished and that's that and I think that is trying to tie into the main theme of allowing life to define life rather than allowing death to define it like it's not part of her story has ended but the ending isn't part of the story. I don't know if that's a good way to phrase it but she's very much still allowing the life that she's lived to be the primary thing that defines her life rather than the way that it's ended which to her is just like flicking off a light switch it's just a thing that has to be done but it's not part of the story of her life. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no I, I it didn't at first but I but you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, it's like this, it just, it fits her character so perfectly. You know, this is a woman who she's absolutely content to steal somebody's car as her means of transportation. She decides she's going to steal this tree and replant it in the woods. That's just, she got up that morning and decided that's what she was going to do. And she gets up on her 80th birthday and knows that this is the day she's going to die. I mean, it just, it fits her character so perfectly that it makes sense that there wouldn't be a ton of focus Or even sorrow. I mean, it kind of goes to that same sorrow quote of, this is what she knows she is. And so she's
1: not sad about it. Yeah, I've just thought as well, this is a, a new thing that's just popped into my mind, but I think you could view it as sort of the mirror image of the scene where she throws the little penny souvenir into the ocean in a way, because that scene is telling us the material possession doesn't matter. All that matters is that it happened, they loved each other, and that is a memory that will always have happened. And you could sort of say that Maud's viewing her body the same way. She doesn't have to hang on to being alive in this physical body forever. She has lived and she has loved, and that will always be true, whether or not she is still living. Does that make sense? That
0: that is brilliant. I like it. I really like that. I hadn't thought about that. That's, that is amazing.
1: Yeah. Which sounds like a pretty great way to view death as well, that you're not losing anything because you've already lived.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, it reminds me of some of the old romantic poets, you know, that wrote about death as just, that's just part of the experience and live your life so that when that part of the experience comes, you don't have any regrets. You're just ready to embrace it
1: exactly you don't want to minimize the good parts of your life because you're too hung up thinking about the fact that one day you won't have them you just need to enjoy them you can and make sure that at the end of your life the pile of good things is bigger than the pile of bad things and death is just the way it ends it doesn't have to be one of the bad things
0: Wow. As if this movie wasn't prolific enough, you just completely changed my uh, thought process on it. So congratulations (laughs) for
1: that. Fantastic.
0: All right. So as if Maud's death isn't shocking enough for the audience, then we end with uh, Harold driving his car over the edge of the cliff, only to discover that he's bailed out at the last second and... And this is the transformation we see is Harold looks, you know, at where the car went and then takes his banjo and starts playing that song that Maud was singing and going off happy. And again, this is also foreshadowed because he told Maud that he he was happier when he's dead, you know, when people think that he thought that he was dead. And so this is him getting that opportunity to kind of have a rebirth and have life on his terms instead of on his mother's terms. But it is kind of... You, the audience isn't given any time to really prepare for it or even react to it because it's literally the last 30 seconds of the
1: movie. Exactly. It's so up to your imagination exactly where Harold's life goes after that. It doesn't tell you where it goes. It just gives you this vague idea of the direction he's heading in, which is a better direction. So it's still... Do you a happy find that satisfying? I, I do, yeah. I don't think they need to over explain it and show us oh he goes on and he falls in love and he lives a great life i think we can infer from the lessons he's learned that his outlook on life has changed and he's going to live his life according to that new outlook that Maud has taught him which i think anyone would agree will give him a much more improved life than he otherwise would have lived because he's truly going to be embracing it this time
0: yeah yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a happy ending, as much as it seems like a sad ending. I mean, Maud is dead, and he's kind of just now setting out on his own, but it definitely, I mean, it's a rebirth, but it, so it's, it's he, you know he's heading in a happier direction than what he was experiencing before.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And you, you almost have to wonder how sad his mom will be about this.
1: Yeah, they leave that really up in the air, exactly what is going to happen in their relationship. I would like to think, just headcanon, but I would like to think they would eventually develop a, a good relationship because even though, to people who've not seen the movie and listen to this, they probably get this idea that his mother is this really horrible character, but I don't think she is. I think she's quite sympathetic. She uh, treats him terribly sometimes and is very controlling, but you can just sort of see why. She is living in this society that sort of, demands that is expected. It's not She's not the only one in society who expects Harold to grow up, get a job, get a wife, wear a suit, and, and do that whole scripted life that he doesn't feel he wants to live. She is sort of just as much a victim of this system as he is. So I don't think she's ever necessarily the bad guy. She just doesn't realise the kind of damage that you can do by being so overbearing with your children. I think she cares about him and she only wants the best for him. So I would like to think that they would work past that and have a good relationship in the future. But of course we'll never know.
0: That's a really interesting perspective because I, I, I'm not, I didn't th- see her as the bad guy per se, but I don't think they have any relationship in the future. I think that's part of him. You know, the car going over the cliff is he's starting a new life and he will let his mom think that he's dead and he will go off and just do his own thing.
1: That's true. That could be the direction it goes. It's so left up in the air. And that would maybe fit the character really well. Like you say, he is just discarding his old life entirely and moving on. So I think you could be right that that is what happens. Not necessarily what I'd like to happen, but it's possibly what would happen.
0: All right. Well, let's move into the uh, end credits here. got a couple of quick little games for you. The first is The Algorithm Says. This is like a lightning round based on other movies that algorithms say you will like because you liked Harold and Maude. So it's quick reactions to these movies. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see how they were connected? That kind of thing. Okay.
1: Okay. Let's hope I've seen them.
0: (laughs) All right. First up, Being There. Not seen it. (laughs) Never heard of it, actually. Wow. It's the first movie that actually came to my mind while I was watching this. Uh, Definitely. It's Peter Sellers, and it's definitely worth a viewing. I think. I think it's Peter Sellers' best picture, but uh, I guess that's up for debate.
1: All right, that'll be the top of my list. Uh,
0: okay, the last picture show. I don't think I've seen that. <laughs>
1: that's not perfect, is it? But I haven't seen that one either. Okay, five easy pieces. <laughs> not seen it. This is not going well. Is not it? Not seen that one either. Okay, no. that's
0: Jack Nicholson. Um, okay, The Graduate.
1: Uh, I saw that that was your most recent episode, and it's another that I've not seen, which is probably one of the surprising ones. It,
0: it, what's, what's interesting is when if we had recorded this when we were originally scheduled to, I wouldn't have seen it at that point either. I only saw it when, when uh. I recorded that episode of the podcast, so uh, I've now seen it. I do recommend it. it. It's definitely tonally connected to this one, and it really had me thinking what comedy meant in this time period versus what comedy means
1: now. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who'd not seen it though, because that is definitely one that it seems like everyone has seen, but I haven't got yeah. around to it.
0: <laughs> All right, couple more. Uh, In the Heat of the Night.
1: Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay. Annie Hall. Mm. I've seen that a very long time ago. I couldn't really say. Okay. I can't All remember right. much of it.
0: Little Big Man. Not seen it. <laughs> not seen it. Okay. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Um, two more gray gardens.
1: Nope. <laughs> nope. Okay. And the conversation. Nope. Oh, I was holding out hope for the last one there. I can't believe I've not seen any of those except one. Well, the com
0: the conversation I hadn't even heard of when I was putting this together. And then oddly, one of the podcasts I listened to just hit on it last week. And now it's like, oh, it's, it's Francis Ford Coppola, but it's one that people aren't really that familiar with. So Uh, some good movies there for you to add to your, have not seen list then.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I've got no excuse while the whole world is in lockdown. I'm going to work through that (laughs) list. All
0: right. Um, finally, we always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie that you've picked. Uh, are you ready? Yep. All right. Number one, Bud Court was a relative unknown when he was cast as Harold But in an alternate dimension, another actor was cast in the role. Which of the following was not considered for Harold? So you've got three people here who were actually considered for Harold and one that wasn't. A, Elton John, B, Bob Balaban, C, Harrison Ford, or D, Richard Dreyfus.
1: Huh. Surely Elton John was not considered.
0: No, oddly enough, he was. Uh, Harrison Ford was the one that wasn't considered for the role. And this would be a very different movie with Elton John in that role. And it would be a really interesting movie with Richard Dreyfuss in the role, because I think he actually could pull it off, but it wouldn't be the
1: same. I can see that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right. Number two, as Harold and Maude visit the amusement park, there's a shot of them looking at toy trains that prominently features a bearded individual. This is a cameo by what crew member? A, writer Colin Higgins. B, director Hal Ashby. C. Musician Cat Stevens, or D. Cinematographer John A. Alonzo?
1: I think it's the director, Hal Ashby.
0: It is Hal Ashby. Yay! (laughs) Cat Stevens does put in a cameo as well. He appears at one of the funerals.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. And That's an excuse to watch it again. All
0: right. Three. Writer Colin Higgins wanted to expand upon the world of Harold and Maude by telling what additional story? A a prequel that teamed up Maud with his Silver Streak character Grover Muldoon, B a prequel that showed Harold's mother before she became so stuffy, C a sequel that showed Harold's life after Maud's death, or D a sequel that reunited Harold and Maud in the afterlife. C hmm. C a sequel that showed Harold's life after Maud's death. Yes. Uh, actually, yeah. two of those were true. He also did want a prequel that teamed up Maud with uh, Grover Muldoon from Silver Streak. Really, but he That's never us. got around to either of is them. That? Yeah. All right. Last one credited as M. Borman. The motorcycle cop is actually played by what well-known actor? A. Jack Nicholson. B. Hal Holbrook. C. Clint Eastwood. Or D. Tom Skerritt. Ooh. B. Uh, no, not Hal Holbrook. It's actually <sighs> Tom Skerritt. Uh so
1: I knew it would be B-L-D. I don't know
0: why he was credited as M. Borman,
1: but that's that's who it is. So, All right, man, strange. where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Um, on Twitter, pretty much Instagram. All the social media is just my name, Brett Barnett, but without the vowels, B-R-T-T, B-R-N-T-T. I also do a podcast called Quietly Yours. Very different to this one. It's fiction anthologies. so it's a different horror story each episode, so yeah it's a good way to see what kind of crazy stories I write, having grown up loving movies like Harold and Maud natural <laughs> <five-way things. laughs> i I love fiction
0: anthology podcasts. It's not a i mean I've done a little bit of voice work for a couple, but it's not a genre I feel like I would be comfortable producing, but I'd love them when they're well done, so yeah,
1: yeah it
0: is cool well i really appreciate getting to sit down and talk about this one uh i thank you for introducing it to me my mom thanks you for introducing it to me because she's <laughs> been giving me a hard time about not having seen it and i know this is one of the few episodes of my podcast she will actually listen to so hi mom fantastic <laughs> hi <laughs> <laughs> so thank you man uh this was great really appreciate it
1: yeah no problem it fun thank you for having me
0: so that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Harold and Maude, or maybe tell me a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter on Facebook, where I have not seen this podcast, or email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, the long held zombie movie episode, which I'm releasing right in time for quarantines to be ending, because nothing bad ever happens when we go out into the world when it's not a good idea, right? This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard Entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Brett Barnett for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This.